0: The Kingdom Roots podcast is brought to you today by the inaugural Theology and Mission Lectureship held on Friday, June 17th at Northern Seminary. Our special guest, Michael Frost, will be casting a vision for the church as an exile people practicing incarnation. This intersection of exile and incarnation reveals how to be the church amid the cultural challenges and sheds light on opportunities we have from being in exile. You can learn more about the event or sign up for this incredible gathering at seminary.edu slash onmission16. Again, that's seminary.edu slash onmission16. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. I'm your host, Chaz Robbins, and for today's episode, we're looking at church structure then and now. You know, Scott, as we, you know, talk about Church structure, and especially looking at it today, holy cow, there are so many different ways that this is done. And, you know, especially looking at all of our different denominations upon denominations that we have, I feel like there is just so many different routes of
1: church structure. We got a, a pretty broad topic here, don't we? Yeah, we do. In fact, it's very interesting. I had a conversation the other day with a Methodist pastor who was discussing the big issues that they're having right now in Portland. And he began to describe uh, Methodist uh, international and national church structure. And he said, basically, our church is organized in mirror image to the United States government. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. You know, that, that's something
0: um, I've heard before in, in, in looking at you know, Roman Catholicism and, and the, the fallback to the, the Pope and how that's structured, um, kind of representing a Roman Empire with the emperor that all the structure went back to. And, and now us in America, as you mentioned, the uh, the different branches of government that we have as, as we view structure. Do you think that's something that is interesting, fascinating? And Is there any grounds to that and how that happened?
1: You know, it it is very clear that people in churches, uh, when a church, I should say this, people in churches, when these churches are fresh and new or when denominations are just uh, starting, is that they will form church structures, church government leadership styles that will be natural to and emerging from their own social context. So I think you're right. Sometimes the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, we're talking back in the Constantinian era, mm-hmm. begins to look like the Roman Empire, and churches in, and, and, and those structures then influenced all the Eastern Orthodox churches. They influenced the Roman Catholic Church, and they influenced churches that have, um, direct and genetic connections to Catholics and Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So Anglicans have some pretty strong hierarchical lines that are like and unlike some of those stronger lines you find in Orthodoxy and Catholicism. So it's very, very much the case that congregationalism can only exist when people believe in a democracy. There were no congregational churches not in explicit form, until after the French Revolution in, in, in many ways, so that you could have this sort of uh, government by the people and for the people. So yes, church structures mimic and make use of the structures of government in societies. Hmm. Well, before we get any further, uh, how about
0: any foundational information that we need to know about um, leadership terms and roles that are found in the New Testament that ultimately um, would give you know, the vision and, and the foundation for, for what was the first century and early church function of structure um, for their churches?
1: Yeah, before uh, before we get to uh, that, and I think all those uh, the terms in the New Testament are important to examine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to say this: the other day, I had a conversation with a young man, uh, graduate of seminary, who came to me and asked me, uh, "Do I do did I think he should become a pastor?" And I, and I told him, I said, this is the answer that I give to everyone who asks me this sort of question. I said, um, do you have the gifts to preach on Sundays? Yes. Do you have gifts to, let's say, lead people? I said, I think so. But I said, I want you to understand that a pastor is a pastor. And I said, so the question that is most important to me, um, and this was a, a situation where someone had written and asked me if I would write a recommendation, and I had a phone call with the person. I said, the question that is most important is, are you pastoring other people, and are there other people who consider you their pastor? I said, because when you become um, a a reverend and you get an office in a church and you become the senior pastor or the associate pastor, that is not going to make you a pastor of people Mm. by giftedness. It's going to give you a position in a church. Mm -hmm. So the fundamental question for me about leadership is, are you pastoring people and I like to look at it this way, because there are some people who think they're pastoring people uh, who are actually not. The question is, how many people look at, look to you as the person who is pastoring them? You know, Chaz, we have a lot of churches today where people think that their primary responsibility is to get up and give a sermon on Sundays.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is not pastoring. That's preaching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's teaching. That's exercising one gift, but there's a gift, uh, a very important gift in churches, and this is the gift of all gifts when it comes to leadership in churches, and that is the gift of a pastor, and a pastor is someone who pastors, and what I mean by that is they are personally involved with people They engage those people in conversation. They know these people's names. They pray for these people. These people come to these pastors as their pastors. And and my pastor, Jay Greener, is a genuine pastor. He meets with people throughout the week. Uh, He does not live for the sermon, Mm -hmm. Uh, he lives for the congregation, and the congregation loves him and knows him because he pastors the people. In the church,
0: yeah, you know, I, I'm so glad that you set that uh, foundation for what is a, a pastor because before you know we can rush off to, to roles and, and structure and uh, responsibilities, um, you know, really before the position comes the person and comes the the way that people see you and your role that you have in their life and um, you know before you can get any type of position, like I said, you know, you have to you have to have that that reality of what I understood you say is really, I mean, discipleship, I think, is what it comes down to in a lot of ways of, of that interaction, of, of that way of your life being an example and a, a path to follow, to lead people into a greater understanding and a relationship with Jesus. And um, if that's not happening, it doesn't matter whatever title you may have, uh, you're not doing the job that... Um, we see happening in the New Testament, and we see ultimately coming back to what Jesus did in his example with the disciples and, um, you know, living his life and giving them the, the things that they needed to have to be able to, to carry on and expand uh, the kingdom of God as he designed it to do.
1: You know, I, I teach at Northern Seminary, and uh, Northern Seminary is not a church, and we don't ever want to pretend or even think that we're a church. However— Ah, uh, because we have relationships and because we have work relationships and because there are all kinds of people running around, um certain people arise as go-to persons. Mm-hmm. They become the people to whom students go, other faculty go. Uh, they are the pe- people to whom staff and various various people on campus go to. Those have become our pastors. and at at Northern Seminary, our president, uh, William Scheel, and uh, sort of like our vice president, Karen Walker-Freeberg. These are the two pastors mm-hmm. of, our, of our institution. Mm-hmm. People come to them. Now, students come to us. Each one of the professors have some pastoral relation with students, but in the, in the big picture, um, we have we, we see go-to people. And to me, um, a church leader is a go-to person for people at the spiritual level, mm-hmm. at the personal level, at the spiritual growth level, at the theological level. It is not simply a teacher. It is not simply a theologian. Uh, it is instead the the pastor who pastors the people, and this to me is the fundamental question about calling and giftedness. Uh, is do you... Pastor people,
0: yeah, without a doubt. And you know, I think as we you know look at the the vision of leadership that especially Paul sets in his epistles in the New Testament, uh, I feel in all of his descriptions, he is so much more concerned with the attitude uh, of being an elder, a leader, uh, an overseer than the actual function and the responsibility because that comes with the the territory when you're a go to person, like you said, and. Um, um, I feel like so much of it more than anything is not a, a prescription for the specific um, checklist that needs to be met, but it's a description of um, what the, the kind of person and, and a vision for that kind of go-to person that is needed and required for um, a, a leadership role. And I really, I think coming down to identifying what's already present and happening in the community in that way.
1: Yeah, the the words used in the New Testament for, let's say, uh, there's there's a lot of debate here, and, mm-hmm. and the minute you begin to discuss this, there are people who who disagree. Yeah. For instance, is is the pastor someone who is also an elder mm-hmm. and or a bishop, uh, and are the deacons pastoring? So is pastoring a gift, and elder, and bishop, and deacon, are those offices. I find that kind of language to be language that emerges later in the church and not very helpful for describing what the Bible actually says, and it, it assumes some knowledge of things that the Bible isn't clear on. So, so I, I think it's very clear that Paul uses— some terms for leaders. Peter does too. Mm-hmm. So for instance, leaders in churches can be called, uh, in the NIV, the word is overseer. Uh, in the old King James, it was bishop. Mm-hmm. The Greek word is episkopos, from which we get episcopal church government, yeah. where you have sort of bishops who look over, you see bishops in Methodist churches and in, in uh, Anglican churches and in Catholic churches. That's, that's, that comes from that term. So, uh, so overseer or bishop or um, episcopos you know those are the kinds of words that are used. And Paul says that in in First Timothy chapter three, the overseer or or the bishop is to be above reproach. So immediately uh, we're dealing with character. I think that's mm-hmm. what you were talking about. Faithful mm-hmm. to his wife, mm-hmm. temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Able to teach. Notice the first thing out of Paul's mouth is not that they're theologians. It's not that they preach on Sundays. It has to do with their moral character not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own house, his own family well, and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect, etc. Not a recent convert, he could become conceited. He must has also have a good reputation with outsiders. And so this is uh, this is a revelation on the part of Paul of the sort of person who the sort of person who is required or who is needed to be a leader. Uh, in the church as an overseer. And that would be a pastoral relationship for people in the church emerging out of a person's character. And this is what I was saying at the beginning, what I told this, uh, this young man who was asking if he should be a pastor. Mm-hmm. I said, are you pastoring? But that's not simply the question is, are people coming to you? Mm-hmm. And that's, that to me is the magical moment. People come to people because that, uh, let's say, a person comes to a person as a pastor, because that person is pastor worthy, because that person trusts that person as a pastor. So Paul, I think you're absolutely right. Paul was looking for character. Mm -hmm. Involved in that character is the capacity to teach. Now, sometimes the word, instead of using the word Bishop, the word is elder, and there are some people who dispute whether this word elder and this word bishop are the same thing. And uh, there's some very good literature on this. I tend to think that we have we have almost ruined how we look at these categories in the New Testament because of their use throughout the history of the church. So an elder is someone who's on a board with other elders, yeah, and so there's multiple elders. Well, multiple elders, were there multiple elders in the first churches? Were there multiple bishops who counted as a pastor? We, we don't know answers to these questions. What we know are the sorts of things that Paul tells us uh, that are of, I think, of even more value, mm-hmm. is that this elder, this pastor, this bishop, these deacons, have moral qualifications that make them trustworthy, leader-able, and they are, as a, in essence, they are people whose dynamic in the spiritual life is trustworthy enough for other people to come to them.
0: Yeah, so if we're to uh, um, be faithful to the words uh, of Paul and his original message and intent for his churches, it's it's really you know kind of like we've circled around um, going back to those those character principles and the the realities of, of those things being necessary over and above maybe some of the functional roles and authority that might come uh, with that because it seems I don't know it, it kind of seems as we're talking that's that's really what he's driving
1: at and trying to get to you know you you just bring up a, a dynamic word here I I I get really nervous mm-hmm. and disappointed when I hear pastoral converse, conversations about pastors and their roles in churches when they when the language gravitates toward authority mm-hmm. when it when it gravitate gravitates toward lines, of of authority, lines of submission, uh, who's in charge of whom, mm-hmm. who, you know, all this sort of language. Uh, okay, you cannot operate in a church without some leadership structures, without some responsibilities being designated, but the fundamental character that is to shape a church is the realization that Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the head of the church. And his primary act in leading the church, in that sense, was to give himself for it. Yeah. So that the uh, what what Michael Gorman has so helpfully called cruciformity, and I just got a new book by Leonard Allen, who is at Lipscomb uh, University in the seminary there, Leonard Allen has a new book called The Cruciform Church, and I think that the—and he used the word cruciformity before Michael Gorman was using it, Uh, but for a footnote, I I found the word cruciform in a novel by Willa Cather uh, long ago, so uh, I know that neither of these theologians invented this category. But cruciformity—cruciformity then becomes the ruling model for how Jesus— uh, leads. He doesn't lead by in, in a sense by because he's the all-powerful, almighty king who tells people what to do, though he does give commands. Mm-hmm. Jesus leads by a cruciform life. He he created the church by dying for the church. Mm-hmm. So the model of Philippians 2, though yeah. in the form of God. He surrendered himself to the point of death so that he might be exalted. This becomes the very essence of what Christian leadership means. Mm -hmm. It means to give yourself to and for others so that they might become what God wants them to become. And then they learn to live a cruciform life uh, uh, in their own circles. So to me, leadership... Uh, and and i'm I'm reading a book right now by Kent Keith, who is the President of Pac Rim, a Pacific Rim University in Honolulu. Not a bad gig. <laughs> yeah, if you can get it. but uh, but Kent is extremely good on servant leadership. And he lets that servant leadership radically influence everything that happens, everything it that he does, how meetings are governed, and uh, I I find him to be a persuasive, uh, modern example of leadership, whether in a secular uh, situation, in an institution like a school, or even in a church, where the cruciform character of Jesus reshapes even what leadership means. So for Paul, he did not look at here this is what you must know, these are the tests you must take, Mm -hmm. this is the sort of power you must exercise, Mm -hmm. this is the people who have authority lines underneath you. Paul talked about character and that fundamental character you can reduce to being a person who loves God and loves others, who serves God and serves other, who is faithful to God and therefore faithful to others, who loves his family who doesn't get distorted by uh, the significance of his position or her position, so that the family is neglected? Not not with Paul. It's it's about you being so Christianized in your life that you Christianize every person and every situation where you are. Yeah, I love that you bring that ultimate leadership coming back to cruciformity,
0: and you know, as I look and study church history, and even look at the the what happens a lot of times in church settings today, um, and and I see when. Things go wrong and, and things go bad and, and people part ways and things get nasty. Um, I often wonder, man, what if what if they only took up the that that call of Jesus to to wash each other's feet? You know, to 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 really live out that John three. Th- John thirteen um, example that that Jesus gave us, and in, in you know, Philippians two, the same thing of you know what he did was he washed feet. and and that was leadership. And that's the vision that he gave. And um, if the kingdom's going to take root in in our world today, that's what we have to do as church leaders uh, in
1: that. well, yeah, so, I mean, and you know, the kingdom, the the kingdom vision of Jesus, is that the? I often use this expression, the character of the king determines the character of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about nations who have very strong leaders or nations who are marked by leaders, and you will see that a society begins to reflect the character, uh, the model that they see in the leader, And Jesus was a son of man, servant of God, who gave himself for the sake of others. And out of that character, out of that personality, Mm -hmm. out of that vision for who he was, he reshaped how people should live. Mm -hmm. So Paul and Peter are beginning to embody uh, that form of, of kingdom reality, the character of the king is a son of man who gave himself for the sake of others kind of king and therefore the kingdom becomes people who are marked by son of man who gives himself for the sake of others that is what it means to live uh, and to to lead in the kingdom of god
0: Yeah, without a doubt. Well, with the time that we have left, a couple of things I wanted to make sure that we hit on, and and one was, um, I guess, the the role of apostle. I mean, that was one that was was clear and evident, and um, you know. In, in our church calendar, us just celebrating Pentecost is kind of a, um, you know, important theme as well when the, you know, the Holy Spirit comes on the church. And, you know, that's obviously a very important moment for, um, the church in what it was doing in momentum and, and where it was going. Uh, but what do we need to know about the role of apostle and how it played and functioned in the early church and how we should, I guess, continue to see it maybe function in the church today or just a, a healthy way to understand the foundation and um, what it could inform for us today?
1: Well, Chaz, you're opening up a little can of worms here. <laughs> uh, I, I, an apostle. Uh, in in Hebrew, and then in Greek, refers to someone who is commissioned or sent. And so, the uh, first apostles, the twelve, which pro- expanded in the New Testament to include others, the first apostles were those who were sent by Jesus explicitly. So, you know, we know the twelve apostles. They're they're listed in Mark chapter three, and they're also listed. Uh, in Acts chapter 1. So we have uh, these people who are being sent by Jesus. Then the term broadens a bit so that it includes Paul, who was not sent by the earthly Jesus, but who was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. And then we have other apostles like Andronicus and Junia. Junia is a female uh, and is already in the 4th century being honored as one of the great apostles of the early church. So, I would say that apostle refers to people who have been sent. Um, I get a little nervous today when people call themselves apostle uh, because I, I, I've grown up in a, in a theological tradition that sees that word apostle sort of restricted to the first generation.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I think uh, if we want to broaden it, anybody who is sent by a church or a church body has an apostolic rule. Uh, role uh, in whatever that church summons them or commissions them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tend, I tend to be a little nervous about calling people apostles. But uh, it would refer to someone who is commissioned for a missional task by Jesus. And what do we need to know as, you know, we look
0: at church history through the years and the concept of apostolic succession? Um, you know, that's that's probably something at least we need to be familiar with, um, but do you think as we look at um, church structure now, that has any significance
1: for us? Well, the official—all right, apostolic succession is a, is an idea that develops in the Catholic and then into the Orthodox and then into the Anglican. A tradition at some level, at a lesser level. Apostolic succession uh, works with the idea that Jesus commissioned apostles, and only these apostles can pass on that gift, those keys of the kingdom, those special charismatic tasks and roles that Jesus gave to them. And there must be a physical uh, connection between uh, Jesus his apostles, and all these other people over time. Uh, That's sort of the apostolic succession, and I'm sure my Roman Catholic friends would want to give me a a bucket load of nuances and (laughs) corrections on how this works. I see apostolic connection rather than apostolic Mm. succession, and that apostolic connection is that we are connected to Jesus and to to the apostles whom he commissioned. And that apostolic connection that we have today is found in the New Testament scriptures because they are the those New Testament letters, the New Testament books are the apostolic witness to the gospel about Jesus Christ. And then throughout the history of the church, that apostolic witness has been unfolded, explicated, developed, uh, not corrected, but shifted and expanded so that we have the Apostles' Creed, then we have the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon definition, and then we have, as Protestants, I accept the fundamental contributions that were made to the Church by the Reformation in its Mm -hmm. emphasis upon justification by faith, its emphasis upon grace, its emphasis upon the importance of Scripture and the authority of Scripture over against the authority of tradition so that we we have apostolic connection when whatever theology we believe is being checked by and measured by the canon of scripture.
0: Hmm, That's good. I like the apostolic connection. Uh, well, we've covered a lot of ground here, um, from you know how the church structure often reflects the society in which the church is uh, a part of. You know, we've looked at really you know Paul's heart in describing the the role of leaders and uh, the New Testament vision for leaders in the church, and we've talked a, a bit about here on the apostolic uh, succession and connection and, and the role of the apostle. Uh, before we go, anything that we need to else that we need to know. Uh, about this topic or, or or parting words for our listeners.
1: I mean I I would want to say that uh, the leader of the church is Jesus, not yeah. any human being. That leaders who are appointed or who are called, recognized, ordained in churches should be people who are first and foremost submit in submission and in obedience and faithfulness to Jesus, so that the authority or the power, the lordship of Jesus is what shines through, not the authority or the charismatic power of the leader, and that genuine leadership is measured by character, by growth in holiness and love and faithfulness, not by authority structures or even by capacity to preach and wow an audience, is that we, we need to have more pastors. Uh, and in that sense, I'm, I'm quite willing to say we need more pastors and fewer preachers, mm-hmm. uh, fewer people who want to get behind pulpits, and more people who want to open doors and talk to people about their faith and help them grow in their Christian faith.
0: Well, we hope our conversation today has been helpful for you to see how Jesus can lead your church to help the kingdom take root in your context as it did in the first century. And um, we're grateful that you joined us today, and we look forward to seeing you next week.